for me, an eating disorder is just a really bad way of coping with things that life throws up at you. And so unless I'm prepared to go, well, that was a really ineffective way of dealing with um, sadness or depression or grief or anger or what, whatever it was, then I've got to come up, I've got to come up with new tools. Acknowledging that past is important, but hanging on to it is, is just not helpful. Welcome to the Juggling the Chaos of Recovery podcast, where we focus on health and wellness and overcoming all types of addictions. You're in the right place if you're a mom, dad, sibling, or caregiver who has a loved one who is or was struggling with an eating disorder or any other kind of addiction. In a time where everything seems heavy, I'm here to bring you a very real yet lighthearted take on what the heck we're all supposed to do with our lives while we care for our loved ones who are struggling. One thing holds true throughout it all. You can't juggle the chaos without smiling, at least a little bit. Well, welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am your host, Moira Gorski. Uh, grateful for you. Um, grateful for this journey that uh, I continue to be on as a mother of a child who is struggling with some mental health disorder and eating disorder and one myself who has recovered myself. And as I was just sharing, I do believe that there is such wonderful divine intervention. And uh, it continued to happen uh, last week as one of my networking friends. Um, as If you listen to my podcast, I do lots of networking for my business. And um, one of my networking friends reached out and said, I think you need think you should meet one of my friends. She's writing a book about her journey, which seems to be a chaotic, awful life that no one could imagine. But she wrote a book about it. And it's about to come out. And I think you should be connected. And so today, I am connecting you with her and really, uh, again, interested to learn more about her story, be able to share it with you. Um, Simone Yem is coming to me today from down under as I said in one of my other podcasts where I interviewed somebody from Australia, I just think I love technology and fascinated by the fact that we can connect all across the world and have that commonality of we've had struggles, we've overcome. And so let's share that hope with the world. So Simone, uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm so glad you're yep. here. Um, as we do, we start with the story. And I know that you have, again, a little bit that I've learned about your story is that um, really was a young child, figured you kind of had the world by the string, as they say. And um, but there are lots of circumstances that happened, chronic sleep deprivation, lots of different things that led to depression, anxiety, disordered eating that consumed your life for many years. So let's start. Let's start with your story. Again, we don't talk about the down and dirty and all of that stuff. But let's just talk about kind of how that developed and um, a little bit about that journey as you journeyed your way through there. Sure. People often say to me, and I heard it said a lot when I was in the eating disorder clinic, when did your eating disorder start? Um, I'm 54 years old and my eating disorder started when I was four weeks old. That is my personal opinion because I've got my baby book that my mother wrote in. Um, I was a lovely Bonnie, 12, uh, 10 and a half pound baby or 10 pound 10. My mother's this little tiny petite, five foot two, very beautiful, tiny little woman. And so she wrote in my baby book when I was four weeks old that she needed to slim me down and she popped me on a diet. 
So um, I was put on a diet when I was four weeks old and it's all I knew was dieting behaviour. Now, I didn't have a label for that at that age. Um, I was a lot older before I put myself on an official diet. But I was the eldest child and then my parents lost a child and then my youngest siblings were naturally I and mean, you can't see me because this is a podcast but I have red frizzy curly hair and my two siblings have jet black dead straight hair and they're built like beanpoles my father used to be a professional athlete whereas I got the round curvy boobs and hips and everything and that didn't kind of fit into the comfortable body image and body shape that you know, I grew up in the era of Twiggy and it was, I know many people still seem to want to be like that, but it was very popular back then. And if you didn't fit into that body shape, you weren't kind of quite right. And so my mother was a little bit of an admirer of Twiggy um, and also the lovely phrase, you can never be too rich or too thin. So I was raised on that. And by the time I was in my teenage years, I'd um, graduated to proper dieting. Uh, we won't go down the path of which diets I did did or didn't do, but if it was written in a magazine, I gave it a good hot try. Um, and then by the time I was 22, I was bulimic. So I went down the route of bulimia. I just felt like when I wrote my book, I, I kind of felt somewhere along the way there was a turning point, not a conscious turning point, but I was a very, let's face it, I was a bit of a difficult child at times. I was not an easygoing child. My mother didn't have any easygoing children. And so I was quite rebellious. So all this, you know, don't give a dessert, don't have second helpings, all that kind of stuff, because I was too plump. I had the puppy fat my grandmother talked about. As I got a bit older, um, it was just a matter of whether I kind of went right against that and ate whatever I wanted and did whatever I wanted or whether I just went down that line and just restricted more and more and more. And so I ended up, you know, with the bulimia, with binge eating. I've had binge eating disorder my entire life. And then later on I had some anorexic tendencies. But I think with eating disorders sometimes there's a categorisation does us some disservice really. I mean, I know they're different disorders but they're all just as dangerous. And, um, yeah, yeah, that's my rough story. Uh, it got worse, but that was me up until 22. So, yeah. So lots of, yeah, lots of, you know, we've talked about it before on this podcast. It's just that, you know, the diet culture, the what we see in society. And um, as a mother myself, I'm sure I've said many things that, you know, I didn't mean to say a certain way or, or, you know, I didn't mean what I was saying or something or didn't realize the impact of what perhaps I was saying that could impact an impressionable child, if you will. Yeah. I felt like as I was writing my book, I was very conscious of not demonizing my mother. She was a product of her own uh, upbringing, as we all are, and a product of the generation that she grew up in. She did the very best she knew how. So for me to end up with the problems that I ended up with and everything kind of um, hit boiling point when I was around about 50, and I'll talk about that in a sec. But, yeah, my mother did did the very best that she knew how. Neither None of my family would have ever wanted me to have issues, but even my very slim, very beautiful sister still had an eating disorder, even though her body shape fitted in with what was considered okay. I didn't come from a, I haven't come 
from a background of abuse, um, physical trauma or anything like that. But they have what's called childhood emotional neglect, which is just my parents weren't able to meet my emotional needs and also the needs of my brother and sister when we were young. And it's not because they didn't love us, although, you know, for a long time it felt like that from my mother. But I know very well having watched her die and spend a lot of years kind of looking after her as she got ill that, of course, she loved us and she, like any parent, you would do anything for your children. But um, she didn't know how to meet our emotional needs and that has got me into trouble basically. So when I was turning 50, there's a lot of grief that had happened. We lost, um, I lost eight family members in five years and I did not have the emotional capacity to deal with that. Um, my mother's death was quite difficult. She was dying from cancer and my sister's death, she died at 40. Uh, she had a lot of mental health issues. That was extremely traumatic for me and I just, I did not have that kind of, I didn't have the tools to deal with that. Um, at the same time, like by the time you hit 50, I don't know how old you are or your listeners are, by the time you hit 50, your parents are getting older and your children are hitting the teenage years if you're kind of on the average. And that's a really bad combination. So you've got these teenagers that start, you know, being teenagers and you've got parents that um, and or friends, you know, that are starting to get ill or have problems or are ageing. Um, my grandmother's needs became extremely high and I became her primary carer. All of that did my marriage no favours and we were really, really struggling. We thought we were going to separate. Um, we've got stronger and we are still together 28 years down the track, but you don't know that, you know, five years ago we didn't know if we were going to last a week, let alone five more years. And so all that came together and I had a complete nervous breakdown. So I'd gone into full-blown bulimia, absolutely. And then I was so tired of that. It is so utterly exhausting completely exhausting and so then I dabbled in the anorexic behaviors and then I ended up in the psychiatric institution for a month that was my first stay pretty much all they do there is kind of get you stable get you eating enough that you when you don't even when you're you do, I think people think with eating disorders that you don't eat any food but it's not true. Uh, you, you do keep eating food, but you're eating in such a manner that your cognition is quite often disturbed. So it's hard to make good rational decisions and it's really hard to get onto recovery, I think, when your cognition is damaged. So they got me stable, got me on medication, and then I came out of that. I, I walked away from my career. I was a musician for, I started when I was eight and I left when I was 50. So 42 years, I guess. Uh, although, let's be honest, I wasn't teaching when I was eight, but I started performing when I was eight. So I left that behind. That was, that was a huge identity crisis, I, a huge identity crisis for me to lose my musical career. And, yes, yeah, still kind of dealing with that, but I'm okay with it. Things in the intervening five years from when I went into the clinic in 2016 up until now have been up and down. The last eight months, I have never been so well. But at the start of last year, I had never been so ill. That was my third inpatient stay. I don't know how much detail you go into, but I'd taken an overdose and 
I felt when I was popped into the clinic, I felt like I was the feral cat that was in a cage. And it was just, yeah, it was just awful. But I did an eating disorder program while I was in there. It was a nine-week stay and it was at the exact same time COVID hit. So the whole world had gone into low. So I was locked in. The whole world had gone locked down. So that kind of meant that I wasn't the only one locked away. To some degree, that was a little bit helpful. You know, I remember because my daughter was, well, when COVID hit, she was in the midst of a relapse and she did self-admit to a treatment center during that time. And I said a very similar thing to her as we were all locked in, we couldn't, you know, and um, even though we were in a different state, we were all, like you said, we're going through the same thing. And I said, I think I can understand. Cause I said, you know, I don't know when we're going to get out. She's like, yes, you know, we're not sure what we can do and what we can or who we're supposed to. She's like, yes. I mean, I said, I think I can really understand when you say like, I just want to be home. I just want to be back to normal, but I don't know. And I have to do, I have to follow what they're telling me to do. And I don't have control. And I mean, so many similarities that, you know, it helped. Yeah. It helped me and us appreciate a little bit more what she goes through or what you go through when you're in. Yeah, absolutely. So COVID is just an extraordinary circumstance that none of us have lived through in our lifetimes, obviously, or, generations worth so yeah when I came out I had to um, the psychiatric facility I was in was interstate they don't have one with eating disorder programs where I live so when I came out of the program and came home I had to self-quarantine at home for two weeks and which was like I would have happily quarantined for a month it was a very good transition for me but yeah so it, it it was kind of, I mean, it's slightly more freedom than when you're in the psychiatric institution, but not a lot, like you are kind of trapped in your house and the police check on you every day. So, yeah, it was very interesting to come back out into a world where a lot of people are going through what you're going through, even though it's mm-hmm. not what you're going through, if that makes sense. But there is comfort in shared misery. Not that you want anyone else to go through your misery, but people, when people understand, it makes things better better to some degree there is a there is a little bit of comfort in that and I know you've got an eating disorder background and I I don't know your full story but I know for me that I nobody knew anything about my problems until I turned 50 so I had a whole lifetime of this secrecy and then when I made it public which was incredibly shameful but when I made it public and now super public obviously it took away the shame. Like I often say to people, silence is shame. And when people don't talk about stuff, and I find that eating disorders are really often not talked about, especially in older women, there is a little bit of an image that it's a white girl's, privileged white girl's disease. And that is mm-hmm. couldn't be further from the truth. It's it's a, it's a disease that um, is an equaliser, like, like a lot of mental health stuff is. It can affect absolutely anybody. You don't need to be rich or white or a girl or young. It's not just a phase that teenagers go through. Yeah, no, but I, but I, you know, and I want um, people to to hear like what you were talking about before that we're in the midst of. Well, for one, there was that whatever you called it, uh, emotional support that your parents were not able to give you enough of. The child childhood emotional neglect, it's called. Yeah. 
again, we've mentioned it before, like there are patterns, there are generational patterns that continue to repeat themselves. And so it's no fault sometimes of our parents or that person because they really don't know any better. Someone that I was speaking with today said something about that because I have a wonderful mother and um, had, I can relate to the emotional neglect there, um, even though she cared so much. And I married a man who I dearly love and he's so similar in a lot of ways to my mother. And so it was something that she we spoke about today about how the patterns continue on until you're ready to look at them and perhaps then make a decision. Are you going to try to change it or things like that? And me finding, this is all of a sudden just going to me for a second, but me finding my voice and trying to work on my voice being heard and respected and appreciated and things like that. It's been a journey for me and something that I've worked on for the last few years. I think as a result of those, again, I didn't feel like my voice was heard before. And there's sometimes I don't feel like my voice is heard in my marriage and things like that. And again, no fault of my husband's. I think that's behavior that he was modeled. My mother same type of thing. So I I like to at least make sure that people heard that because when you have an eating disorder or you have a child with an eating disorder, there's a lot of, or I just heard from a friend of mine the other day whose child is really struggling and is probably going to go to a place for a troubled youth. And she said, I feel like a complete failure as a mother. And I'm like, it's not, it's not all your fault. It really isn't. You know, we play a, we play a part right in our children's lives but it's not completely our fault. There are so many other factors that happen. You know, someone told me once, okay, but you had four children. And if you think like it's, you're completely responsible for your daughter's issues and demise and whatever, you have four children and they didn't all get eating disorders. They didn't all. So it's like, there are lots of factors involved. It's not just the parent and how we choose to parent and things like that. Absolutely. Like I personally think of it like a jigsaw puzzle, you know, um, things that happened with your parent is, you know, maybe one piece and it's not that the parent is at fault. I just, I think laying blame on people is just, just not useful because nobody, nobody Mm. says the wrong thing on purpose, but you know, there's so many things as there's your personality, there's your peers. Um, I think parents are given a lot more credit than they really should for how much influence they have over their children. You only need to see teenagers running off doing everything you don't want them to do to know that their peers have a huge influence on them. We live in a Western society um, with a cultural cultural influence that says, you know, youth and beauty and being slim are the ideals and without those things you won't be happy and that you're not enough. And, I mean, that's where a lot of the well my eating disorder stuff came from you know you're not good enough was not words that were ever spoken to me but they were definitely the message I got but I think of it a jigsaw puzzle and my friend thinks of things like this as a recipe where you know parental input might be one ingredient but you know it's not a cake if it's only got flour in it so in order to get the cake you need you know a dozen different things have gone in and that could be anything you know, we're all we're all crafted by a whole pile of stuff and we've all got our problems and some of them unfortunately get bigger than others. But if we spend all our time focusing on whose fault it was and, you know, this shouldn't have happened, my parents should have been able to say I love you or, or whatever, um, then you can't get better. I think it's really important that we acknowledge that 
that we were shaped by X, Y, Z. But whatever skills we haven't learned, um, and for me, an eating disorder is just a really bad way of coping with things that life throws up at you. And so unless I'm prepared to go, well, that was a really ineffective way of dealing with um, sadness or depression or grief or anger or what whatever it was, then I've got to come up, I've got to come up with new tools. Acknowledging that past is important, but hanging on to it is right is just not helpful for me. I can only ever speak from personal experience. I'm sure that there's lots of listeners that can completely, you know, relate to that as well. So it's good to Again, I think it's good to not generalize and say everybody's like this, but again, us sharing our experiences um, as we learn um, can really help other people as well. You know, you chose the name of your book, Stalked by Demons, Guarded by Angels, The Girl with the Eating Disorder. And due to divine intervention, I read that last week just at a time that I really needed to hear that because I truly believe in a God who is good and um, is for is for the good of others and not for for evil. And when you have someone in your life that's struggling with an eating disorder, there are times that it's like that is not that is not my child. That is not her speaking. It's just and so I would love for you to talk a little bit to that like how you chose that name and um you know for your book. So I will just say I do have a faith in God, but I only have had that faith for 2 years. I grew up in a very agnostic I just grew up without religion, without any faith. There was no judgment. It wasn't a, it's a bad thing. It, it was just, it just wasn't a part of our life. And when I went to Jordan in 2018, and I'd had a friend prior to that who um, had a very deep faith, and I'd often just been curious and asked her, but I developed a faith during my time in Jordan which is, of course, you know, the heartland of the history of Christianity. But I'd always felt my brother died when he was five weeks old. He was a SIDS, like a cop death um, back in 1968. And he has always been my angel. So faith or no faith, God or no God, I'd always believed in angels. And he's always been my angel brother, angel baby, angel, you know, person that, you know, guardian angel. But then as I got more and more ill, I just felt, I don't, know if, I don't know that I felt like I was demonic, but I felt like, I don't even know that I feel like I was possessed by demons. I, honestly, we're getting into a realm where I'm, I'm not very knowledgeable, but I didn't feel, you know, when you have an eating disorder, you know it's not in your best interest or in the best interest of anybody else, yet you perpetually do the exact thing that you said five minutes ago you weren't going to do. And so you feel out of control. A lot of eating disorders are labelled as being a method of controlling a life that is, you know, feels out of control to you. So the one thing you can control is often what you do or don't eat. And so, yeah, I guess I felt like I was often not in control of my life. And having a faith now, I would say that, yeah, it feels like I was being tugged by you know, dark forces or whatever to 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 do the wrong thing. And whether or not you have a faith, I think prayer or whatever the equivalent word is in your own personal language is one of the most powerful things you can do. Um, in a complete overgeneralization, people will talk about depression as living in the past, anxiety living in the future, and prayer as living in the present. So when you're using prayer, 
or meditation, mindfulness, just, you know, listening to the universe, whatever is your language of spirituality, then you are in the present moment. And when you stay in the present moment for any length of time, you will lose, I lose that sense of depression and I lose that sense of anxiety. Don't want necessarily slow my heart rate down or, or change all those physical things if that's what I'm happy having. Um, but my thoughts, rather than panicking, I spend an awful lot of time panicking. I'm very good at it. It's my superpower. But if I start praying and stay in the moment, then I lose that panic and I stop berating myself for all the things that should have happened or wishing, you know, all these useless wishes that I have that I wish it had been different. I wish I hadn't done this. I wish I hadn't done that. Wish I'd been a better mother, you know, whatever. We all do it. I'll just get out there on a limb and say we all do it. We all wish something could have been different. And I guess to some degree we all worry about the future. I think they're fairly normal things. But when you have mental health issues, you tend to do those in a little bit more extreme. But when you come to prayer, and I spend, you know, probably 15 minutes, for some people that might not be a lot of time, but it's a big deal for me, 15 to 30 minutes every morning just conversing with God and having a little bit of a chat and saying thank you for the the view out my bedroom window, I have to say, is really awesome. And sit in bed um, and just have gratitude. Whether it's a rainy day or a sunny day, I can see the trees, I can see the water, I can see the kookaburras and I can hear them. And they sit in an old gum tree. So I don't know if you know the song. but um, I do know the song. I was just about to, to it's sing literally this song. Out, literally outside my window. I mean, I've, I've got a lot to be grateful for. Um, and gratitude is something that you talk a lot about when you're doing mental health recovery stuff. Not just eating disorder, but mental health recovery in general is, is looking for the gratitude because often it's not that we're overly negative, but... Um, there, there may have been a lot of things that have happened to in someone's life that then builds up a fear that that's going to happen again. And when something has happened repeatedly, it might not be happening, but you're afraid that it, that it will be. So prayer brings you into the moment. Um, I spend my 15, 20, 30 minutes on a good day with God saying thank you, and then I, I do get into the begging, you know, kind of, thing that we think of prayers as you know the magic wish list up there can you please do this for me but it's so much more than that it's it's a lot about gratitude and I just happen these days to have a gratitude to to God for all the things that I have to be grateful for I have a lot to be grateful for I've got three healthy boys who survived their teenage years and I survived their teenage years and they're all doing amazingly well and I'm incredibly grateful for that. My my marriage survived and we're, you know, I've got an amazing husband and he annoys the crap out of me sometimes, but for the most part he's, you know, an absolute rock and when I fall he always catches me. You know, that's something to be incredibly grateful for. I live in Tasmania in Australia, which is probably one of the safest places in the entire world from covid um, we don't have any. So, um, you know, there, there are so many things that I can be grateful for. And even when things were really, really tough, there's always something to be grateful for. The days sunny or the kookaburras are singing in the old gum tree. But yeah, so I think prayer and spirit, finding spirituality um, was a very important part of my journey. And I didn't necessarily think that I was going to find God. I never thought that I would find the traditional Christian faith, but that's that's where that's where I am. 
but I think it's very hard to recover from mental health stuff if you don't address spiritual stuff because it's kind of a disease of the spirit. It's not like a physical disease where you can put a Band-Aid on it or do a blood test or pop a pill or something. You can't can't fix mental health issues like that. It's although, right. hang on, there are pharma, pharmacological supports and I certainly have a lot of pharmacological support, but on its own, my personal opinion is spirituality is really important. I mean, you really just said it so beautifully there. And I love, again, the depression, the anxiety, the past and the future. And and all we can really be in is today. I took a, you know, self-leadership, you know, course a while back here in the in the States. Um, and that's what they talked about is the past is the past. And there's many stories that we play through our head and rackets that go on and on and on about Aunt Joe or, you know, this or my grandmother who said to me, well, Moira always has a little trouble with things. Like, what is that all about? But, you know, I played that story over and over in my head and it can get, it has gotten me down many times. And then anxiety of the future, I mean, is just, it can be crippling. As I spoke earlier, I mean, you know, even a dance competition that's coming up in a week and a half, I got anxiety over that's about the future. So what can I do is I can stay present. And I love what you said that it can be prayer. You can call it whatever you want, but just connecting with that and perhaps you you know, connect with what you think is your baby brother that went before you or, you know, or a God that you know, or you're just meditating on a spirit or whatever. It's just finding that. And I've come to that place to believe that. I was raised in a very traditional Christian, you know, Bible-believing Baptist church home. And so it was always just kind of one way, you know, we just pray. Well, we don't do the yoga, you know, because then yoga is, you know, then it's like, that's, and they're, you know, worshiping other idols. And it was like, you know, so anyway, I've just throughout my life, I've come to believe that you can call it whatever you want, but just find a place where you quiet yourself down enough to be able to listen, you know, and have that conversation with what what is there. I think it's so important. To, you have to get out. There has to be something outside of yourself. And I don't just mean another human being, but there's got to be something outside of you and not everyone believes in a divine creator and and that is fine you know we're not here to tell people what they should believe but there has to be something outside of yourself whether that is nature whether that is the spirit world whether that is god and i find having had an eating disorder you spend a lot of time inside your head and you've got to get outside your head to get that kind of perspective I still, I mean, I can't say that I never live in the past. My mother said to me once that all her children were a tremendous disappointment to her. I mean, that was her exact words. There's some things that you just remember as precise quotes. I don't actually know what the intention of her words were at that time because I was standing in my house having just brought home my newborn baby and she said that to me. And, you know, sometimes I really find it difficult to let that go, but I need to let it go. Um, my anxiety is always that everyone's going to die because I lost so many people. And as you know, I'm currently sitting here at the hospital with my father who's in a coma. And so he's elderly and he has cancer. So this was not exactly a surprise, but it's very difficult to let go of the people that you really love. 
But for me, my anxiety is like, well, this is number one. Everyone's, you know, I've had a two-year reprieve or five-year reprieve. No, not a five-year reprieve. But, you know, I have this overwhelming fear that everyone else is going to die, you know, so this is the first one who's the next. And I have to keep grounding myself and go, well, that that's anxiety talking and, um, you know, there's no point eating that anxiety. I, it, You know, I might have to sit with that and it might be really uncomfortable. I might do some journaling. I find journaling, you know, my journaling turned into a blog, turned into a book. So it's really um, the journaling, I believe, saved my life. And I cannot recommend journaling enough to people. I was told about it for years and years and years and I would just go, yeah, whatever. That would be great for other people, but it won't help me. Well, I was proven wrong. Journaling made a big difference and you're not you don't even need to be able to spell to journal. Like it's it's not relevant if you don't construct full sentences. Nobody cares. That's that's what I've said a few times. Like I didn't journal for so long because my penmanship has gotten increasingly worse over the years. And I was like, so why would I? But it's not about that at all. I don't probably. And I was like, I'm not going to write a book. Well, maybe I'll write a book someday, but it doesn't even matter. It matters that you're getting those thoughts out and in my journal yeah it's I mean getting I'm, the inside out right yeah you've got to get the inside out um like I said before shame um silence equals shame so when you don't talk about something there's a reason you're not talking about it and it's probably you feel ashamed now not everything it's a secret birthday surprise because I mean it's an exception to every right. rule you know <laughs> you might not talk about your husband's surprise birthday party but but in general if something's happened to you or you're feeling something and you don't want to tell anybody I think you have to be careful who you talk to, but if you don't want to tell anybody, then in my completely non-expert opinion, there's some kind of level of shame. And so you need to get that out. And if the best that you can do is journaling, I find that journaling really unpacks everything in my head. I can look back at it and go, look, that was completely ridiculous. You turned, you know, a little moth suddenly became a giant dragon in your head. Yeah, I'm putting together, um, I'm working on putting together a journal for this podcast that, you know, people can can get um, because I just truly believe so much in it. And it's, you know, it has, it's a... It saved me many sleepless nights, even though I've still had some sleepless nights. It saved me some other, you know, from having more. I just always, even when I went to the hospital the other day with my daughter, and as you, we use the word dysregulated, I was dysregulated myself as well as my daughter. I grabbed a journal, and um, as she said, well, we can't take you back there. And I'm like, you know, with your purse and your bag and your clothes, you know, your coat, I said, can I take my journal? (laughs) I actually asked, she goes, you can take your journal. I'm like, good. I need to take my journal because that's going to help me during those two hours of waiting for some type of, you know. When I went into the clinic uh, at the start of the psychiatric inpatient at the start of 2020, I was in the ICU for eight nights and they watch you like a hawk. You're not allowed to have anything with you. They're careful with your shoes, everything. And so I, but I wanted to journal. It was really important to me that I journaled. And it's very interesting to read that back. Getting hold of a pen or a pencil was a real struggle. And you had to sit and write in front of this. But I can't really explain how, you know, I would get up at three o'clock in the morning and journal insomnia. But I think you mentioned at the beginning that in so, oh, well, hang on mentioned being emotionally dysregulated I've literally just written a post um, in my blog called dysregulated where I wrote about emotional dysregulation and 
Yeah, it, it interests me and, I, and nobody can know the answer, but whether that was nature or nurture or both for me because I definitely am quite dysregulated with emotions and I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a researcher, so I, I don't know where whether it lies more in nature or nurture. Um, like a lot of things, it's probably both. But it's not easy living with that emotional dysregulation and I don't know that those extreme emotions ever go away. I think you just learn to deal with it. Well, I'd love to know as we're kind of wrapping up our time together, I'd like to know when we're going to talk again, because I feel like I just am so, uh, again, it's so wonderful that we're connected. And I'm thankful to Mary for that connection. Yeah, absolutely. But um, you said that you walked away from your music career. You know, what are you up to these days? Um, Or is this what you're up to is sharing your story and yeah, so I I taught the flute. So I was a flautist, classical flautist for 30 something years. And I'd um, at the end I'd spent 13 years at the one school teaching amazing girls. Like I had, I absolutely adored it. I mothered every one of those girls to the best of my ability, but I needed to walk away for a number of reasons and it broke my heart and it was a necessary thing to do. So that was five years ago. Since then, I guess the point of me talking about journaling is the journaling turned into blogging and my blogging got really good response um, and people seemed to think that what I was doing was quite good. I got introduced to um, a writing mentor, Joanne Fedler, and um, through Joanne I learnt to write even more eloquently than I was writing in my blog and through her I have written my memoir and my memoir which has got a very long title and people have informed me that um, once it's with a publisher, the title may get changed because it's got an awful lot of words in it. But it's my working title and I like it. But, yeah, so I really consider myself a writer these days. Insomnia is what I was talking about earlier on because I have really severe insomnia and I'd been awake pretty much, obviously not constantly, but pretty much awake from January to March when I went into the clinic. I virtually had no sleep. 20 minutes here and there, you know, with a bit of medication, a couple of hours occasionally. And, you know, I would do two or three days with zero sleep. And that's very bad for, for already problematic mental health. But I write about insomnia now for health, healthunion.com. And so I've got restless leg syndrome, which makes it difficult to treat insomnia because a lot of insomnia medications, um, they often use psychiatric medications for insomnia, but you can't, psychiatric medications really mess with restless leg syndrome. So the first thing they did when I was in the clinic um, in 2020 was sort out my insomnia. It took a while. It took several weeks before I could start sleeping. And that was very heavily medicated and then yeah we had to work out how to get me um, home and medicated but not in a stupor kind of medication and I'm happy to say I have a really good little um, happy safe cocktail of medications that I take that manage mood I do have two mood stabilizers but they don't impact my sleep and then I have a um a sleeping medication that works plus my two restless leg syndromes I feel like an old woman with all the little tablets I have to pop each night and I quite often in the past I would go off my medications because I would think I'm too young to have all these meds I don't want to be taking medications but for me they've become life-saving I do have a really good treating team and so you know I'll talk to them and go 
you know, whatever. I think I'd like to do a bit less of this one. Let's give it a go. Well, that didn't work. Let's go back on it and whatever. So I work with the medications. But insomnia has been a huge part of my life, always been a part of my life, but just got really bad as most things do when you get older. And to answer your question in like very few short words, I'm now a writer instead of a musician. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really, really nice. And I'll... um share the links in the show notes that they can get in touch with um, you, your book and things like that. And um, again, I love what you have created, if you will, or pulled from your experience of life, taking all those thoughts and putting them down. I don't know. I just, again, I feel like musicians are very creative. They have a lot of thoughts and again, creativity. So I think it's no surprise that you're a beautiful writer. You know, if you were a a talented musician. I don't know. That's my uneducated opinion right now. Again, I, you know, I'm so thankful and it was lovely to have this conversation with you today. And I really hope that um, I know that people um, listening are finding value with it. Just again, a story of someone's life that um, was consumed by a lot of interesting things that you never expected. And oftentimes that's what happens. We don't expect things to happen in our life. But if we can get to a place where you're sitting and I'm sitting, you know, on the other side at the end of the road or half, you know, partly down the road to a better uh, to a better place, it's a wonderful place to be that we can sit in that gratitude and just be thankful for let's look at the good. Let's celebrate the good. Just push the bad under the rug a little bit because it's time to think about the good. The one thing that I would love to say to anyone that's listening that's struggling with an eating disorder is that for years and years and years I said I was too old and it was too late. You know, I was um, 50 and I had an eating disorder. I, I didn't know anything other than disordered eating in my entire life, but I'm, I'll am i be 55 next month, let's face it. But, I mean, I know it's not um, 50 years of, you know, recovery, but I have never been this strong ever I don't think so you know I've had eight months six to eight months of really really strong recovery and I cannot imagine I I don't want to go down that path actually because nobody imagines that they will relapse but I've I've not felt this strong and and I'm not too old Mm -hmm. and if I were to relapse which I don't believe will happen but if it were to happen then um you know stand up fall down nine times stand up ten is always the just never give up so if anyone's listening and they think that they're too old you're not too old just give it another try find the resource keep reaching out find the supports it's worth it it's worth it it is yeah it's worth it you're worth it Um, I say that to people that I counsel in my wellness business that it's never it's never too late to start paying attention to you and giving attention to you you know it's never too late to and you know to peel back the onions or look at a different you know, source of support or things like that, that might be different or you don't think it's going to work, but you know, maybe it will. So I love that message as a kind of wrapping this all up message of, again, it's never too late. You're worth it. And everybody deserves, I say this to my daughter all the time, you deserve a life better than this. And we all deserve a life better than disorder, chaos, struggle, anxiety, you know, we all deserve. And again, I believe that the God that I believe in, you know, put us on this earth to have a beautiful, abundant life and to share that love with other people. So again, I hope people hear that and can take that to heart and, and make those um, sometimes hard choices to 
get the help they need so that they can live a great life. So thank you, Simone. I know this is a, that you took your time away from uh, being with your family. And I do truly appreciate that. I think your story is, your story is one to be heard. Your soul is beautiful and wonderful. I'm wonderfully grateful to be connected with you. So again, um, thanks for listening, everybody to the podcast. Thank you for coming back. Please share the story if this resonates with you or you know somebody that else needs to hear the story because that's what we're here for is to, again, share that story of hope and love with others so that we can be the best that we can be. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head over to iTunes and leave me a five-star review. Share it with others and make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. I've got a tribe over on Facebook, so head over there and search for Juggling the Chaos of Recovery Podcast Tribe. And do you know somebody who has a story, a story to share, a story of recovery and hope? Please let me know, as I'd love to feature them as a guest on one of these next upcoming podcasts. And perhaps you're looking for a community of like-minded, collaborative, and supportive people who cheer each other on as we strive to improve our lives. If that sounds like something you've been looking for, schedule some time with me. You'll find the links in the show notes. Let's talk and let me help you find your way. And I'm here to tell you that you're worth it.